0: and welcome to the world in 30 minutes the podcast on the events policies and ideas that will shape the world from the european council on foreign relations my name is mark leonard i'm director of ecfr and this week we're talking about the impact of ukraine and its war on france where the presidential race is entering its hot phase we are sitting under the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, outside of the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, within a stone's throw of the Elysee, which is uh, what the campaigners are trying to capture in the French presidential election. And I am delighted to be joined by Tara Varma, who is the head of ECFR's Paris office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me again. It's a pretty crazy moment to be in Paris, just two days ahead of of the Versailles summit.
0: So, Tara, the whole of Paris is getting ready for this big summit in, uh, in, in Versailles. All of the heads of state and government from around Europe are coming. The agenda is very much about responding to the war in Ukraine and helping build European resilience in the face of uh, the Russian threat and the, the, the economic war that we've embarked upon. Do you want to tell us a bit about what we can expect from Versailles?
1: Sure. So let's maybe uh, clarify one point, which is that this summit was always going to happen. It was one of the big priorities, one of the big events of the French uh, EU Council presidency. At the time, it was supposed to be a summit about rethinking the European growth model. And it was really um, about energy independence and digital and climate transitions. Of course, with the situation in Ukraine, as you mentioned, uh, the agenda had to shift a bit. And so we are still very much talking about energy independence, energy sovereignty, but as well as um, as the opportunity that that is presented right now in upping our European defence ambitions and implementing those ambitions. Because we're seeing now that there, there are very big expectations from the European citizens for the EU to act in the face of an adversary.
0: Can you give us a bit more detail on what we can expect on those two big, important areas?
1: So I think we're facing a consensus right now, which I wouldn't have have thought was the case earlier. Most European member states agree to talk about energy independence and sovereignty. It is clear the diagnosis is shared by everyone. We need to have, of course, other sources uh, of procurement and, and of energy um, resources than Russia. It's not just it's not just an energy issue, of course. It's also uh, a question of independence and our ability to reply to Russia, but it isn't easy. Um, in the case of France, there's a 20% dependency on uh, Russian gas in the case of, of Germany it's 55 percent and 35 percent of dependency when it comes to Russian oil for some other European Union member states we're talking uh, 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 of a dependency of 80 to 90 percent and we don't have an immediate solution to actually transition from our dependency from Russian gas and oil to other resources so we'll have guessing all the advisors of these heads of states are thinking now about who could be the best providers for Europe we're looking of course at countries in the in the Mediterranean looking at European defence ambitions. Sorry,
0: before we go on to defence, let's just spend a minute or two more on the, the energy issue because there's obviously been a ratcheting up of European pressure on, on Russia. The US has started uh, looking at sanctioning Russian oil, which is uh, the, the most profitable sector for, for the Russian government. Do you think that Europeans are going to be willing to, to actually boycott Russian oil and gas?
1: They seem to be willing to do so for now, even though Schultz seems to be on the fence. I mean, of course, he has to be extremely careful and prudent about, uh, you know, making very strong declarations and not being able to build up on those declarations. There are lists being drawn right now of potential other uh, providers, but it. It is going to be very hard for the Europeans to basically get exactly what they got from the Russians from one sole provider they'll have well in a way they'll have to diversify, which I guess is is a good strategy, but they are scrambling to find uh, to correct answer right now. The other providers that exist are also you know not always our, our geostrategic geopolitical partners, so we'll have to I guess for the time being put, put our relations uh, with them in a box and, and look at the uh, transactional financial dimension of, of how we secure Europeans. In a way we are shifting out slowly out of uh, the European winter towards the European spring. So the resources that most European Union member states have can allow them to last until the spring. But we'll have to think about seriously autumn and, and winter 2022.
0: What about the economic impact? I mean, we had a major shift in, in the European debate at the time of COVID because people were worried about plunging the whole European economy into recession and the fiscal, the lack of fiscal headroom for, for many different countries, which led to the European recovery plan. Do you think that we're now going to have to have another big socialization of debt and a big debate about, about bonds for, for energy independence as well?
1: I think we'll have to, even though, you know, we're still getting actually the money from the first recovery plan, we're getting little by little uh, each slot of it uh, as European Union member states, but we will certainly have to think and to anticipate a little bit because we will need, I mean, we'll have to understand what this resilient fund uh, is about. When it was uh, for COVID, it was, you know, the the way we called it in France was quoi qu'il en Roughly translates into whatever it costs. And we'll need to do this at the European level because there'll be actually France here is one of the countries that's going to be less hit than others by this dependency and the need to shift away from the dependency. And so we'll need probably France in particular uh, to help other European Union member states. And we, it is going to be hard, but I think. What we're seeing now, and I'm guessing that this is also the whole point of this Versailles Summit, is that the unity that we're seeing uh, within Europeans and hopefully with, with our transatlantic partner as well, I think, can lead to a consensus and to finding solutions together. We need to see how long this is going to last. You know, there is there is there there is a potential for sanctions to hit the European economies also. I wouldn't say more than they're, they're hitting the Russian economies, but for sure hitting us very strongly. And so ensuring that not only our governments are doing the right thing, but also that they're supported by their own political uh, public opinions.
0: So what about the second dimension, European defence, that is always a topic which French people care about. It was on the agenda for the French presidency when it was first being planned. But I think very few of the planners were expecting Germany to pledge to spend over 2% and to create a 100 billion euro fund to invest in its defence, as well as many other countries. One of the latest to to shift is Denmark, which has now announced that it will have a referendum on its opt out from European defence at the beginning of June. And will also. Uh, meet two percent. There's obviously a debate in other European countries about whether they join NATO. So a lot of the taboos which we had about European defense are are collapsing. Is that leading to a big shift in the ambition of the French presidency on European defense?
1: I think it is. I wouldn't say it's a shift. I would say, I guess, for the French, it's a confirmation of the topics that they've pushed for a long time. But again, you know, when the French push for topics, it's always Germany that ends up tipping the balance. We saw it for COVID uh, when the frugals were against mutualization of funds. Germany was also with them. And the moment when Germany shifted away from the frugals and basically with the southerners in Europe, it changed everything and it was accepted. I think now the very fact that the Germans, basically in the span of 24 hours, Changed completely their policy when it came to defense, and it's not it. You know, it's the SPD, but it's not just the SPD. The, the Greens are very much in favor of also basically moving away from their pacifist line and and wanting to invest a lot more in European defense, not to go to war, but to be able for Europeans to defend themselves. And if. We see this shift with the Germans, and I think, again, I, th- I think when the Germans change, it changes Europe. But it's not just about that. Ireland is thinking about investing in European defense, it's a neutral state. Latvia is going to spend 2% as well. Uh, Poland is going to spend 3% of its GDP into defense. And so we're looking at this momentum, and there seems to be a consensus there too, when actually even Again, even a few days ago, it was impossible for Eastern Europeans and and the Nordics and the Baltics to think about European defense outside of NATO. I'm not saying that we need to do it outside of NATO, but we have a council member, Christy Reich, who published an amazing piece uh, on on ECFR's website that I really encourage you to read, where she said herself, it was not envisageable for us to think about European defense outside of NATO. and, And she sees now how complementary the eu and nato can be and they need to reinforce one another I think.
0: so she's estonian for people who are not familiar with Christie's work tara what are the actual concrete deliverables going to be from versailles then in terms of european defense because those are big changes at a national level but what can we do together or is it just going to be about a thousand flowers blooming with different countries doing their own thing and and us all spending more
1: I think the EU needs to do what it's good at, which is putting money on the table. So if we look, for instance, at the European Defence Fund, when it was thought of two years ago, it, you know, we, we hoped that it would be a 13, 15 billion euro fund. It ended up being slashed completely. Uh, what we could do now, and I think it wouldn't be very easy, and it would be a massive change of scale, is basically to take it from the 6 billion euro that it's now at to 60 billion euro. In terms of European funds, that's not a lot. Concretely, in terms of investment, in terms of building a common strategic culture, in terms of partnering with um, other defence industries, that would make a massive change. And it would put Europeans on the table as a serious geopolitical actor and a serious hard power actor.
0: OK, so that's the European agenda. We're here in Paris, right around the corner from the Elysée Palace. The country is in the middle of an election campaign. You couldn't tell from where we're sitting at the moment, no posters at the moment, not very much campaigning on street corners. The war in Ukraine seems to have have put the French elections into a very different mode. Can you talk a bit about how the war is affecting the French presidential elections, which many people thought could be one of the big nail-biting events of of 2022, but it, it now looks maybe a bit less unpredictable than than it was uh, a few months ago.
1: Let's be careful with that. But for sure, I mean, Macron is way ahead in the polls. Uh, I think we've discussed this previously in in several podcast episodes. In a counterintuitive manner, foreign policy, foreign and European policies are really never hot topics in French presidential campaigns, which is problematic for several reasons. First of all, because it's actually, you know, it's kind of like when people go to a job interview without having read their job description. And then they end up having a job for which they're not totally qualified. And that is problematic. And so we're, what we're seeing now is that usually foreign policy is not in the debates. Candidates campaign on very, on mostly on domestic issues, uh, purchasing power, electricity, energy, schools, roads, transportation, which you know is gives a good vision of what the candidate thinks of France and can give good orientations. But it's not the president's job. And so they end up having someone they elected who is not basically doing what they expected. And also, on the other hand, we have someone. Uh, who ends up being, you know, at the head of a country um, who sits on the United Nations Security Council, who is part of the EU, who's part of NATO. And we have people who are, well, basically not always qualified to do the job. And so... Macron is in a position now where for sure he's the outlier because in the face of the 11 other candidates, he's the only one with European policy experience, he's the only one with foreign policy experience. And in this particular case, uh, in this particular instance of of the the war with Russia and Ukraine, he has tried to build a relationship with Putin. Uh, So he tried that as early as 2019. His logic at the time was that he was seeing Russia and China getting closer, and he was extremely worried of what a russia China alliance could do to Europe. He understood that both on a military and economic uh, level it would be extremely dangerous and so his idea was to basically pull Russia away from China. I think at the time uh, you know a lot of a lot of observers thought that this was not not the right calculus because actually Putin could have his cake and eat it too he could stay close to the Europeans and remain an important security um, energy security provided to Europeans, all the while building a closer relationship to China. And this is precisely what has happened. Uh, It was not an either-or situation. Clearly, these situations were not mutually exclusive to Putin. And so Macron attempted several times at, you know, it was not just about getting closer, but basically ensuring that Putin's security concerns could be taken into account to make sure that he didn't attack Europe. And I think once again that unfortunately didn't work for him. But the very fact that he was this personality who reached out to Putin and whom Putin reached out to puts him today in this very interesting situation, which is that the suspicion of complacency that he had towards the Kremlin and Putin, which was, I would say, a big vulnerability for him will end up, both in the campaign and on the European level, um, being a strength, because push comes to shove, whatever happens, however the situation in Russia-Ukraine deteriorates, he will be able to say, I will have done everything in my power. I will have exhausted the diplomatic path, the diplomatic route. And I think this gives him a lot of strength, also because Josep Borrell could take over, Ursula von der Leyen could take over as spokesperson for the European Union, but apparently Putin doesn't want to talk to these people. So he wants to talk to a head of state. He's talking to Macron now. He's talking to Schultz as well. And I think that's quite important. And as the campaign moves a bit further in, in the weeks to come, I think Germany will have to, to stand up to rise to the occasion.
0: So you're talking about the, the presidential campaign. One of the paradoxes of, of uh, Macron's role is that within a European context, he's seen as being soft on Russia and desperate to talk to Russia. But in a French context, he's like a super hawk because so many of the other leaders basically uh, are very much in, in the Putin camp. Can you talk a bit about how the war has affected their calculus. You know, you have candidates like Marine Le Pen and Éric Zemmour. But also, even in the centre-right, you know, last time round, when Macron was running, he was up against François Fillon as the the candidate for the Republican Party. And he's on the board of of various uh, Russian companies, isn't he? He's, He's the sort of French answer to Gerhard Schröder.
1: You're right, and so now François Fillon has actually—he's finally agreed to um, to withdraw and to to resign from all these positions. Uh, I think possibly because he was going to be threatened by British sanctions, and so he decided to do that. But I wouldn't say that it was out of of the moral of the right thing to do. The other, a lot of the other candidates uh, clearly defend Russia. They have an anti-American streak, and they they have found themselves um, completely caught in a corner and so they, they have had to flip-flop their positions, most of them. Marine Le Pen is also an interesting case because she actually has a loan with a Russian bank for 8 million euros to do the campaign. Uh, there is a big question now of whether she'll be able to reimburse it, if the bank will still exist at the end of the campaign, and how she's justifying this to the French public. It's It has been uh, very difficult for her. Eric Zemmour, who was starting to rise basically above Marine Le Pen and potentially could be in the second round in earlier polls, uh, has basically declared that he, he thinks uh, Vladimir Putin is doing the right thing, that Ukraine is also not a country, that everything is NATO's responsibility. And these declaration that he has made has made him lose a number of points. You can sense that his campaign is a bit at a loss because they were absolutely not expecting the Russia issue to be the, basically the campaign's main issue and they are not prepared for it. I mean, he has clearly a view, I would say he has an ideological view, maybe more than others, uh, and a view that would be extremely problematic for European security if he were to win if you look at Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the far left who's basically the left wing candidate who is uh, above all so he's So above.
0: should we just talk uh, just before we go into the details maybe just talk a bit about the poll so at the moment Macron's on about 30% in the polls which is more than twice as much as, as as anyone else next is Marine Le Pen around sort of 14 15% depending on the poll Zemmour's just behind her but around that and then Mélenchon's on what sort of 12 13 depending on the polls. Mm-hmm. And the other left-wing candidates are all down, you know, in single digits, um, not looking particularly strong. Um, so, they include the Socialist Party candidate and Galego and the Green Party candidate, uh, Yannick Jadot, and the, and the, the other… the
1: communist candidate who is now, I mean, who is polling at 3 4%, which hadn't happened in 20 years, basically. But actually, the communist g- candidate… Is now higher than the socialist candidates, and uh,
0: there's a, there's also. another one, Tobira, as well.
1: So Tobira dropped out of the race. She was part of this uh, movement called La Primaire Populaire who was basically in the face of this lack of cohesion of the left, decided to to put up this kind of referendum. Well, it was a, pr- a political primary that everyone could participate in, so 400,000 people, that's quite a lot. And they were listed, the candidates from the left were listed. She won by an overwhelming majority, and people were hoping that because she won, uh, the other left-wing candidates would, would um, stand behind her. They had said earlier that they wouldn't do so, and I have to say at least they were coherent with their initial message. And so nobody... Nobody decided to to make this a big unity moment because if the, if the left, well, the left taken all together basically could be in the second round. They're approximately at 25%. But when it comes to foreign policy, there are real differences between Mélenchon and Yannick Jadot and Hidalgo. It is usually part of their platform, but it's really at the top end of, uh, at the very end of, of their manifesto. Now they've had to to rise again a bit to the occasion. Yannick Jadot, the Green candidate, is one of the few who has called Putin uh, out for what he is, which is an autocrat. The Greens in France, as well, I, I would say, they are not as advanced in terms of thinking as the German Greens. Uh, but they are thinking about what it means to give up in a way on their pacifist line, and so accepting that Europeans need to to, to have some sort of hard power to be able to defend themselves. Again, it's not a, the idea is, of course, not for the European Union to go to war, but to be able to defend itself in the face of an adversary. But they are, you know, they're very, very low in the polls. It's quite surprising because. The youth would, I would say, in majority vote for them, but younger people say they don't trust politicians at all in France, so they feel very engaged politically, but. What they were saying before the war was they were not going
0: to show to turn up. So um, I interrupt you as you're going through the parties, but we covered most of the parties. The two far right candidates, Le Pen and Zemmour, we covered Melanchon, um, the, the the biggest uh, left wing candidate. The one person that we haven't talked about as much, who many people thought was going to be a really central figure in this campaign, but whose star has somewhat waned, is Valérie Pécresse, the leader of Les Républicains, which is the the main centre-right party. Do you want to talk about her?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it says something that we didn't mention her until now. I, there is a sense of big disappointment. Uh, she was really, you know, when she started her campaign, she was taught, you know, it was thought that she would be in the second round with Macron. Uh, she campaigned on pretty traditional uh, right-wing issues. She was very critical of Macron. But now that the foreign policy issue is taking up a lot of uh, the campaign's team, she's finding herself basically being... Having to say what she thinks, and she doesn 't seem to have a line when it comes to European and foreign policy affairs, which is surprising coming from the candidate whose party has basically reigned over the majority of the fifth republic in France, so you know
0: this is the gold party after all.
1: Exactly. This is Dougal's party. She was minister in, in Nicolas
0: Sarkozy's government.
1: In Nicolas Sarkozy's government. So, you know, she's someone who's very familiar with political affairs and she doesn't seem to have an idea particularly. And
0: on, on Russia, what's she what's she been doing?
1: She's been very embarrassed because uh, the current government called out François Fillon on his activities on, on Russian boards and she found herself extremely embarrassed. She complained to Macron apparently about that. But then François Fillon had to resign because clearly opinion polls were showing that the French people didn't like that this former prime minister was getting paid by the Russian government, I mean, by Russian companies, basically by the Russian government. And so there was a complete contradiction that she was not able to resolve. This was not her fault per se, and that's absolutely true, but she has had to handle the situation and she didn't handle it properly. She's still being very discreet in terms of what her platform is when it comes to European and foreign policy. We don't really understand when it comes to NATO, what she wants to do when it comes to Russia, if she were to take over as president in a few weeks, what she would do, and this problematic now because this is exactly what the French people are expecting.
0: So interestingly Emmanuel Macron who a couple of years ago was looking like he was in real political trouble as the country burst into protests all over the place with the with the gilet jaune the yellow vests now found finds himself in what seems a few weeks before the the first round like an almost unassailable position and one of the the consequences of the of the war is that doesn't look like there's going to be much of a campaign either because people are in this kind of warlike condition so he could be one of the big beneficiaries um of uh i'm sure he he um uh would prefer that it was otherwise but in terms of his domestic political position it looks like it could be very helpful to him
1: Yes. And he can't really campaign. You know, we, everyone was telling us in the news that he was supposed to declare his candidacy beginning February and then mid-February. And all the, these political events, political meetings that were supposed to take place where he would declare his candidacy kept being postponed or canceled. And then he actually waited until the very last moment. So uh, there's this process in France where mayors give their official blessing basically to candidates. And this official blessing, parrainage, uh, needs to go through the Constitutional Council. And the Constitutional Council is the one who says, well, we've received and it needs to be at least 500 signatures from these mayors. We've received at least 500 signatures for this and that candidate. It so happens that there are 12 of them now. and." We knew for Macron that he had also all those signatures a while back, I think as early as January, he had them. But he, what he did is sent a letter to the regional press, which he called la lettre française, so the letter to the French people, where he said that he was candidate. But he didn't do it in a radio show. He didn't do it in a TV show. He didn't do it in a political meeting. He basically took this very solemn position of writing to the French people. It was no scoop. Everyone knew that he wanted to be candidate. But I think he tried to do it in the more more discreet way, less flamboyant uh, than before and what we're understanding is this was initially his plan you know he was in 2017 the idea was that he was Jupiterian. it was about verticality it was about respecting the the position of the president he had said at the time that he was going to intervene and talk to the french people on very um, very few occasions that he would he would basically come and 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 talk to us for, in a very top down uh, situation with the gilets jaunes, this strategy was totally abandoned, And that's when he launched the Grand Débat and he realized that actually he needed to talk to the French people directly. And now he is in this situation where he's trying to say, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a, a much more humble position. I want to talk to the French people as well. I'm a very shy person in reality. You don't know this about me. So he's he's trying to build quite a different persona than the one we knew from 2017. And what is also happening now is that, of course, the war is happening and and in a way, it's easier for him than for others, because he knows all the other heads of state from the European Union. He knows Putin, as we've discussed earlier. He knows Joe Biden. He knows Xi Jinping. So he is the incumbent, but he's, he's the reassuring continuity in all this process. And this is what people want, because we know that, as you said also, Mark, unfortunately, this is not going to end in the days to come. And so we want someone, the French people, we want someone who is able to take over and who knows these these issues.
0: So the two rounds in the French presidential election, the first round, you have 12 candidates. The top two go through to the second round. And at the moment, according to the polls... When is the, Remind our listeners when the first and second rounds are and then tell them what's going to happen in both of the two rounds.
1: So first <laughs> round is April 10th. Second round is April 24th. Uh, so there's a, a two-week campaign between the two rounds and usually a, a, an important TV debate moment between the two candidates. In 2017, there was this very strange debate between Macron and Le Pen, where he was, um, so at the time, he he was Minister of the Economy a few months before and he's known to be very precise and technical And so he challenged her on a number of industrial files where she got confused and started shouting at him and seemed very, I mean, she didn't seem presidential at all. And I think he knew at the time that he had taken over because the the gap between the two in terms of knowledge was, was huge. I don't know whether he's going to do the same now. If I were him, I think I, and if he gets to this, this I'm saying this, if he gets to the second round, clearly he needs to rise also a bit above and he'll, he'll be able to show that for him this is, he knows all of these issues and he's ready to take over as soon as the results come out on, on April 24th, well, depending on how the situation deteriorates between Russia and Ukraine, he is the person, he's basically, this is what he's going to say, he's the only person today able to, to take over.
0: So. Your prediction is it will be those two on the first round and what will the final result be?
1: I honestly have no idea. I'm very cautious in trying to make predictions. One of the big issues, one of the big questions that we had raised a few weeks ago was the question of the turnout. So in the two previous French elections, the regional election in 2021 and the mayoral election in 2020, the level of turnout was extremely low, between 35 to 40%. Traditionally, the presidential elections is the one where the French people turn out the most. So in 2017, there was a 75% uh, level of participation, both in the first and the second round. Looking at how things are happening, I think it could be even higher in the first round this time around. And so, you know, then it, it, either it poses the question of the legitimacy of the candidate or it gives him or her more legitimacy.
0: And at the moment, the polls are showing that he will get about 55% of the vote if, if in a head-to-head against Marine Le Pen. Will he then be able to win a parliamentary majority? That's the next question.
1: So that's the next question. And if he wins 55 to 45, then she will have gained 10 points from 2017. I think that's an important element to to stress and to focus on as well. The question of the parliamentary election is really interesting because I think it is one that is going to be particularly important this time. Between the um, second round of the presidential election and the first round of the parliamentary election, there'll be almost a two month gap, and it's going to be the first time in 30 years that the gap is so large. Usually it's only a month approximately. And so the tradition is that uh, the French people give the president, they elected a majority in the parliament this time around. Because the political landscape in France is so fragmented, and we don't really know—you know—basically, the left is disrupted, the right is in 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 the midst of in <laughs> in the midst of being destroyed. There are new alliances being formed. There is a true question about who could who could win. LROM, so uh, Macron's party will not be able to win on their own, but they are in the process of forming some sort of partnership or alliances, mostly with parties from the right. And if, again, if Valérie Pécresse arrives, you know, fourth or fifth in the second round, then this is going to to sign the, the death of les Républicains as we know them. And the question of what they do after that is going to be absolutely crucial.
0: So your prediction, if you had to put uh, all your money on it, would it be in favour or against him getting a parliamentary majority or being in some form of cohabitation?
1: I think if you had asked me two or three weeks ago, I would have said maybe cohabitation. I would say this time around, probably he'll have a majority. Okay,
0: well, we will come back and you'll have a chance to be held to account for your prediction, Sarah. Uh, but in, it's my <laughs> <night>. <laughs> indeed, uh, in the meantime, we'll make sure it goes to a good cause, the future of ECFR. But in the meantime, there's one thing left to do on our podcast, which is um, our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf?
1: Uh, So my colleague Susie Denison and I are publishing a paper in the next hours on European perceptions of French leadership. I highly encourage you to read it. I think you'll find some crispy information in there.
0: And having been given a sneak preview of what's in it, I would very much like to associate my words with uh, myself, with, with Tara's remarks. I just bought a book on my way here. I haven't read it yet, but it's the latest Michel welbeck novel, so I will report back when I've had a chance to read that. So we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts if you enjoyed listening to this podcast please do let other people know about it by writing nice things about it on whatever platform you've used to download it from and whilst you're there please subscribe as well but for now from tara varma and myself mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher of this podcast is lucy Halpentile and our editor is marlene riedel